Welcome to Beauty and the Gee, the podcast about jujitsu and so much more. I'm Jen Eads, a blue belt full of curiosity and questions about just so many things right now. <laughs> and I'm AJ Klingerman, a Brazilian jiu-jitsu black belt obsessed with jiu-jitsu. And we have a very special guest today. We have Emily Kwok. Yay! Yay! <laughs> <laughs> Welcome to the podcast. Thanks. And Emily is a 42-year-old mother of three who has done jiu-jitsu too long. <laughs> Too long? Is there such a thing? I don't know. <laughs> I don't know. I know. I'll just add a little to the intro. So there's like the official bio. Emily is a multiple time IBJJF world champion, MMA veteran, co-owner and co-head instructor of Princeton Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu, co-founder of Groundswell Grappling Concepts, featured instructor on the classic How to Defeat the Bigger, Stronger Opponent series, Peak performance consultant and freelance writer, and she is widely regarded as an early pioneer of the BJJ scene in North America, being one of the first females to rise to prominence as the sport expanded around the world. Recently, she has won IBJJF Masters 3 Pan Am this year in 2023 and Masters 3 Euros World Champion 2023. Um, I would also just say she's multifaceted creative, curious, and a do-gooder working to help us all live better lives on and off the mat. Very nice. Depends on which side of the table you're on. (laughs) Some people would say I'm probably not helping them. Who would say such a thing? Who would say such a thing? Right. There are some people. They obviously were not at the 2019 (laughs) jujitsu camp that I was at Role Model Grappling Camp. And, and really that camp changed everything, you know, like before in 2018 and before all of our camps were like 50 to 70 people. And um, I think the announcement of you made that camp super blow up way faster than I was anticipating. We had to move the location. It got crazy real fast. Um, now we've, you know, figured out how to uh, best accommodate that many people, but it was a uh, a crazy whirlwind we were not ready for. <laughs> well, I was shocked when I came. I was I was truly shocked because you guys you guys had said fifty or sixty people, and then I showed up and I was like, "Holy Christ!" I was like, "There!" Are, I I mean, it was a lot of people, and I had never taught that many people before either. So you thought you were in the frying pan. I was like, "Oh my god!" <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. It was it was a big difference. Same. I had never you know run anything like that for that many people, and now we have more people. Um, but just a, you know, we've got it down. So we've, we've had multiple camps with a lot of people now. So it's, we're, we're, we're better at it. (laughs) Cool. Emily, how do you approach teaching that many people? Well, Emily had to figure that out real fast when I showed up the last time. (laughs) So AJ knows this, you know, like I typically, I think, I don't know, I guess you could say whether it was by force or design, um, have always taught comfortably around like 20 to 30 people. And when we first started doing women's only grappling camps in 2009, we were just questioning if anybody would show up and we thought we'd get five people and we had 30. So we were elated, you know, um, and 30 is like a manageable number because when you break that down now, despite the fact that I am Asian, I'm half Japanese and half Chinese, I was not the most stellar math student. I mean, <laughs> one could argue that that was because I had poor math teaching. 
However, there's a lot of numbers here. Um, so if you have like 30 people, it's like 15 pairs, right? And, um, or less, if you break it up into different kinds of exercises, like if you do pass, protect, sweep, submit, maybe you have eight pairs on the mat and you have a little bit of a line. So it's, better. It's like, it's easier to keep your eyes on that quantity of people. Um, when I came to AJ's camp, I was expecting this, like, you know, 50, 60. Okay. I could probably figure that out, but I think it was Brister that was like, no, no, we've got like 160. I mean, it's amazing. They're all coming because of you. And I was like, what the f- are you talking about? <laughs> <laughs> And she's just like, oh my God, we, like, it sold out the first time. And then we opened up more spots and then more people came and then more, this is because of you. And I'm like, no, it's not. I was like, what is going on here? And I didn't know, like, I thought this was just what they did. And so then I was like, oh, like this is, it, it was a bit scary. And like, in my eyes, it felt somewhat dangerous because I was like, how am I going to mathematically keep track of 80 pairs? You know, like this, how's this going to work? And then when I surveyed the room, it was also, you know, kids through adults, very little experience through black belt. There's so many variables. And so I think regardless of whether you're teaching 20, 30, 150, 300, it's a matter of being aware of all of the variables. And as you know, jujitsu is a very difficult art to um, intake because there are so many variables in learning it alone. Right. So then when you're thinking as a teacher, I have to uh, or this is the way I view it. I am responsible for trying to communicate as much as I can to help all of these people learn something. And so I take that pretty seriously. Like, I want you to learn something. I don't want you to just show up and, you know, bring me gifts. Like, I want you to walk away with something that feels good and that you felt was of a value add for your time and money. And so my first concern always goes to how am I going to connect with these people most deeply? And it, and it, the honest truth is it gets harder with the more number, uh, with the greater number of people you have. And something that I've always tried to pride myself on is having that intimate connection with someone, being able to go up and give them a piece of feedback if I can, or shaking someone's hand, it matters. But, you know, when you have a couple hours and you have 160 people you're not going to shake everybody's hand. So on the fly, I thought, how can I enhance everybody's experience, knowing that beginners are going to need a lot of the base lift, but then the more advanced students are going to want to be seen. I mean, that's something else that I'm also really uh, attuned to, is by the time you kind of hit, you know, purple, brown, black, you're not just looking to do the move, but you kind of want to know with nuance, like, am I doing this right? Does the teacher know who I am? Like, oh, like I came here because I'm a black belt. I know there's not a lot of black belts. I want to connect with other black belts. So um, I used to, you know, my mom will say that all of the jobs I had as a teenager um, have cumulatively uh, prepared me for the rest of my life. I used to run a lot of day camps. And so I looked at all the, all the people and I was like, okay, I'm just going to pull the senior campers out. And I, I think there were like 13 to 15 senior students, like brown to blacks. And I made them the head of each line. And then I counted every camper off and broke everybody down into smaller groups of 13 to 15 people. And then I had the senior students oversee the, the group to help make sure that everyone was learning the technique well 
And then I would just come around to each of the group and poke in with like, like touch point with the, uh, the lead and say, Hey, how's it, how's it going? Any major problems? Try to address the group. And then I try to give the leaders like a little bit of extra attention. And I, for me, I was like, this might be the best way to, um, solve the problem of how do I give everybody a great experience? Because I said to AJ, it's important for me to not only do a good job teaching so that these people remember me as a good teacher, but it's really important for me, like if someone hires me to go work for their camp or their school, I don't want their students thinking, oh, they just hired this like lame ass instructor that just dialed it in or they didn't care or I got hurt when that person taught their session. And I said to AJ, I was like, it, it's, it's a matter of reputation and pride for all of us, right? Like I want to make sure that your people feel like this was such a great experience. They're going to come back next year. Now, thank God she still has a business. <laughs> So so hopefully that means, hopefully that means that something good came out of it. But, you know, I, I really take that very seriously because I think a lot of us who have the privilege to be able to teach, um, outside of our own ecosystems don't always think about like how much, how much rides on you being there and the investment and the thought and the care that it took to bring you. And so I, I'm trying to like raise the bar, um, and, and, let people know, like, this is, this is a job, you know, we got to professionalize it. Absolutely. And, you know, like, I think you did a fantastic job. I think everybody really enjoyed your session. I mean, it's one of the ones that people are still talking about to this day. I have women that uh, no longer train, you know, life happens and they don't train and they're still like, oh, but if Emily's back, maybe I'll come to camp. <laughs> so, <laughs> you made an impact. <laughs> yeah, I'm, I'm so delighted because, you know, you never know. Yeah, yeah, you absolutely did. And I know you made, you know, a huge impact with Rachel. You know, Rachel's a, a good friend of all of ours and, and my coach. And last year when she announced that it was her last year, uh, afterwards she was like, can you just hold me a spot? Just hold me a spot so that if I feel, you know, good enough, I want to teach. And um, I was like, if we could plan her neck or, you know, her last camp, like who would she want there? Who would Rachel want there? And I was like, we got to bring Emily back. We have to see if Emily can come and and teach again. Cause like when you left the last camp, I was like, she's never doing that again. <laughs> but you know, I think that, you know, like, I think maybe after some time you're like, okay, I did make an impact. It was, you know, I think you recognize like what a great job you can do for that many people and touch that many more lives. And so we're really, really excited to have you back. So that was the first time I'd ever gone to jujitsu camp. I'm a new white belt. I had just started in November and I think that was in May and just the overwhelm of all of the information. But as soon as AJ said you were coming back, I was like, oh, this is going to be the best camp ever. I hope so. Hopefully I didn't get worse. Especially since we get you and Rachel (laughs) and daddy. Yeah, no, it's, it's funny how, you know, I always tell people jujitsu for me is not just something that I enjoy doing because it's fun, but the tangible life skills it's given me, um, living sort of like this life of training is super important. And I work outside of jujitsu in the professional space, um, sometimes bringing jujitsu to people who never in their lives ever wanted to do jujitsu. And I always talk about the fact that, you know, when you pick up a practice such as jujitsu, a practice being different from I go to the gym and I'm working out to hit these gains. 
a practice being something that you invest yourself in repeatedly day after day, week after week, that it's really more about preparing yourself for the moment than it is about the moment. And like when the moment happens, it happens, but it's the consistency and it's the dedication, the commitment to training yourself for these moments that is so important. Right. And like, uh, that was a challenge that kind of came, like, I was not expecting that challenge. And then it was terrifying for me because I was like, I, I need to do a good job. Like that, that was like huge for me. I was like, I can't do a bad job. If I do a bad job, I'm going to look bad. They're going to look bad. Nobody's going to come to a seminar ever again. So there was like that moment of panic of like, I got put into this like circumstance of this is a good thing, but how am I going to handle too much of a good thing? Right. (laughs) And so, um, (laughs) I know it's the irony, but reflecting on it, you know, it's, it's interesting because also observing all these different communities that have popped up in jujitsu over the years, it's beautiful to see. And like, AJ's camp, I think, opened my eyes to like, whoa, there's a lot of people in the Midwest, in the middle of the country that want this, you know, and if this is a, if this is the service, if, if this is the way that people are accessing new information, making new friends, interconnecting with communities that they otherwise wouldn't be able to do, I was like, I got to figure out how to wrap my head around this. So I'm, I'm, you know, it's, it, good or bad when people attribute things to it's because of you <laughs> I was like, I'm like ah, I don't know I don't know if this is because of me but you know if if, if I had any hand in um, pulling helping things pull together and uh, help establish AJ's camp as something that was reliably um, and qualitatively uh, a meaningful experience for a lot of women that are in that part of the country, then, you know, that's, that's cool. That's something to come back for. So I was delighted that, um, that they wanted to have me back. I think a meaningful experience is a big part of it. You know, like it's not just jujitsu, it's a meaningful experience. I think that's a really beautiful way to put it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So I, I, this is a little bit of ADD, but you called it pass, protect, sweep, or submit. Can you go back to that? Yeah. To the protect portion? Yeah. So if you think about it, uh, if you're the person, okay, so other people might relate to that as king of the hill or queen of the hill, right? Um, pass, protect, sweep, submit. So if you're on the bottom or if you're in a defensive position, you have to protect your. <laughs> like protect your arm, protect your guard, protect, you know, whatever it might be. Um, and again, it's like, I guess it's calling out the variables in the game. When you say king of the hill or queen of the hill, it sort of uh, holistically implies I'm going to get to the top or I will be the winner, which yes, that's the point. However, how are we going to do those things? And so when you articulate pass, protect, sweep, submit, those are the things you have to do. Then for someone who's not that familiar with the exercise, or honestly, I think for a lot of like people that are um, just like blissfully ignorantly in the middle of their jujitsu journey, they just take for granted. Oh yeah, I know this game. I play this game, but it's like, well, but what is the game? Mm-hmm. And they're like, oh, I- I'm supposed to go in and win. And I'm like, but win what? Like, what are you doing? <laughs> and they don't know, right? And and that's not to any. Yeah. That's not their fault. But I think that part of what I've started to recognize in my years of jujitsu is we do a really bad job teaching jujitsu. I've, I've related learning jujitsu to, uh, maybe not now, but like when I came up, it's like being hazed, 
uh, with your pajamas on and like big people trying to haze you. <laughs> it is right. Because like, you don't know what the hell's going on. And you're like, what do I, what do I have to do? And I have to, I have to just stay there. And if I don't accept it, then they won't accept me, you know? Um, last night I taught a seminar at Thrive Jiu-Jitsu in Pacifica, California. Really, really awesome school with a wonderful vibe. And, um, OJ, who's the owner there, it's a delightful guy, but his, um, he has a, a woman there named Deb that, uh, has been running a woman's program. And we were talking about the old days cause she's been training for 23 years. And so like her history in jujitsu and my history in jujitsu is like, there is a lot of things that we put up with back in the day that nobody else would fathom having to put up with today. So, um, all of this to say, if I'm in a position to make a difference, I would like to try and make things less um, hazy. <laughs> like, let's talk about these things. I mean, is this okay? But uh, no, really, like, I think, I think we could do a better job not assuming that everyone knows what we know. I think we could do a better job not assuming that everyone will just go along with what we do and just give people a little bit of clarity. And if you do that for them, it, they can trust you more and they can get deeper into the experience. And that's something that's also like really crucial for me when I teach is uh, regardless of whether I'm teaching a corporate group or I'm teaching a jujitsu group, I like to call it like we got to learn how to speak the same language first. So when I come in the room, I'm going to read the room and I'm going to see how I can receive people. I'm going to try and connect with as many people as I can through language to make them feel comfortable with me before I take them on some sort of journey. Because inevitably, whatever we learn may be new. It might be scary. Uh, it might be terrifying for some people. Um, but I think if they can trust my language and if they can trust my presence, then we'll be able to really get into it. And so that's why I, where I can, I mean, I'm blind to it too sometimes, but where I can, I try to break it down, um, be extra clear, redundant, dumb for some people. I know some people are like, of course I know that, but I'm like, okay, well, it's good that you know that, but 19 other people in the room don't know that. So yeah, that's where it comes from. So in addition to like the hazing type mentality, what other like major changes do you think you've seen having experienced jujitsu for the past 20 some years? So we are slowly getting better at teaching. Information is now open, right? Like when I started jujitsu and I would even say up until 10, 15 years ago, um, the sharing of information was like not a thing. I remember when we made the uh, DVD with seven, seven casting, how to protect the, uh, how to defeat the bigger, stronger opponent. I think he came to New York in 2009 and asked if I wanted to do that. And uh, I, I, I immediately was like, no, 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 this is a bad idea. And he's like, why? And I was like, people will laugh at me. You know, I'm a woman. I'm, who's going to want to learn from a woman? Uh, DVDs were kind of out there, but like only if you were like Marcelo Garcia, you know? So I was like, I'm not, I'm not, I'm not that good, you know, like no, who's, who's going to feel like they should spend money on something that I would want to teach them. YouTube was not a trusted, I mean, okay, maybe it still shouldn't be a trusted resource, but YouTube at the time, <laughs> you know, it was one of those things where the, 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 the type of information on there was not very reliable and it was not a go-to source. And newsletters were still a thing and tribalism and culty jujitsu schools were a big thing. So you trained at your school 
um, I think I've mentioned this before on other podcasts. I was at a school where they, they persecuted people that were training in their garage uh, off hours because they considered it like really, really irresponsible if you were trying to drill things outside of your teacher observing you. I think that's kind of idiotic, but whatever, like that's, that's the mentality that was permeating. Right. Um, so now you have, again, for better or for worse, a flood of information that is openly accessible. Any, you know, social media made a huge difference. It, it gave people a platform to share what they wanted to share. Who, like, we don't always have the meter to see if what you have to share is anything we want to see, but you can go share it now. Um, so you don't need to be legitimized, which I think before, whether you're talking about a magazine, a newspaper, a producer, someone had to tap you and say, I, and I'm, I would, I would like to help you amplify your message. I would like to put you on display. You don't have to do that anymore. And, um, I mean, look, there's all sorts of things in the trash bin and compost pile, but like sometimes there's some goodies, you know? <laughs> so, uh, so I think that's added complexity. It's added value, but it's also added complexity because I think with more, if you want to call it democratic or open access to information, uh, do the people who are looking at that information possess the ability to filter out what's good and what's bad? Mm, that is tricky, you know, like as a white belt, you're just on the internet looking at things. I'm not sure if you're on TikTok as a blue belt and you're looking at techniques. Okay. Maybe there's some stuff there, but we all know when you train for a long period of time, there's a lot of nuance built up into how something gets done. I know when I look at an instructional, I might not feel the thing that I'm supposed to feel, you know? And so, um, I just, you know, I hope that we don't dilute quality too much. I think our attitudes to, to jujitsu lineages, legacies, tribalism, that's starting to shift and change as well. I think that's very healthy. In the beginning, there was, you know, I'm not going to say it was all Brazilians, but the old school Brazilian mentality was like, you keep everything in the house. You're, you're not allowed to go across the street and play at your friend's house. Yeah. You're not allowed to listen to what this other person has to say. Um, there was a lot of possessiveness. And I don't know if that's cultural. I don't know if that's educational. I'm not sure exactly what the reason is, but I will say that with the expanse of jujitsu in North America, you are finding people, I mean, as Americans do culturally, we challenge things. So challenging those norms, breaking those systems apart, uh, I think that has been good because it's less oppressive. It used to be really, really heavy, you know? So, so we see, we see how jujitsu is being housed changing competitions have grown, right? So like I used to fight gi or no gi just based on, I want to fight and I'll take my clothes off or I'll put them back on depending on where I can get a fight. Um, (laughs) that is a cool thing. Uh, that, you know, there's, there's promotions now that are starting to pay athletes, which I think is great way before, um, Wait, I, I, I should say like I was way ahead of the curve and I was just a broke mofo most of my jujitsu life um, because nobody wanted to pay you to do anything. I mean, I was I was a little I was a little butthurt when we saw ADCC and I was like, man, they got track suits. They have pyrotechnics. <laughs> when I did ADCC in 2007, it was the second I think it was the second year that women were allowed to go. We got mugged. And we got paper uh, photocopies on posts backstage with people's pictures, like 
glued onto the bracket. I mean, like it was not what we saw. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So it's just, it's wildly changed and evolved in that sense. We also see a, a, a larger number of women participating, still not the same as the amount of men, but it's uh, becoming a more inclusive sport. I do think, you know, love them or hate them, the inclusion of women in the UFC, making women mainstream was huge. And as a school owner, I will tell you, after COVID, I was shocked at the flood of young little girls that, that we got into our program. Um, I remember looking at the mats one day and we had 15 little girls and we had one boy. And I thought, what happened? Wow. So that to me indicates that it is become becoming socially acceptable for young women, women in general to fight and, and embody themselves. So, uh, yeah, I think there's a lot of really good things coming. That's very cool. You talk about challenging the norms. And I remember one thing you were saying, you know, I've always been a big advocate for women's only classes for reasons you can go back and listen to previous podcasts about. Um, But, you know, you were talking about like you want it to be the norm that women do jujitsu, whether, you know, like it's teaching co-ed classes, being in co-ed classes. And um, I think at the time for me, that felt impossible And, you know, here I am a few years later being, you know, me and my wife own the gym. We have, you know, I teach most of the classes. We have lots of co-eds, you know, like it's, it's more uh, inclusive than I could have even imagined just four years ago. How are some of the ways that you've kind of helped develop that, not just at your academy, but like everywhere? I just don't give a You know, (laughs) you know, it's like, so uh, some of your audience may or may not know outside of jujitsu, I I work with someone by the name of Josh Waitskin very closely. And uh, he's responsible for writing a book called The Art of Learning, which is tremendous, had a huge impact on my performance and my abilities. And I've worked with him for over a decade. And his life is highly unusual because he grew up as a, you know, quote unquote, chess prodigy, right? They made a movie about his life searching for Bobby Fischer. Then he became a national and a world champion in push hands Tai Chi. Then he wanted to take the jujitsu world by storm, but uh, hurt his back terribly. So he had to stop that. And now he's hard charging in, in water. He's doing foiling and surfing. Um, a lot, it's, it's, it's interesting. I couldn't understand in the beginning why he hated the word prodigy or genius. Like he, he would just, people would automatically say that because he was playing chess at the highest levels when he was like a seven or eight year old, you know, and he was playing adults that were trying to crush him. And, uh, the longer I've known him and the more deeply I've gotten to know him, like, I remember he would say, well, that didn't just, I wasn't just born with that. Like I had to work for that. I had to work to be good. I had to work to be able to play at that level. And I realized from the outside looking in, you don't always have, again, when you generalize, you don't always have a lot of insight into like all of the gears that, that have to be turning to produce such a a performance. Right. And when I think about all the times 
in my life that I've had an idea of like, oh, this would be kind of cool, or that would be better, or I'd like to do it this way. And all the times that those ideas have been shut down because either I shut it down myself thinking "Mm, nobody's going to be interested in that, or somebody else would tell me that's not the way we do it. Or someone else would say, no, 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 no. You don't understand what's going on here, right? Um, We largely live in a socialized world, a socialized context, meaning a lot of our actions independently are predicated upon the things and the, and the ways people around us do things. I'm not going to go to the mall because my friends aren't going to the mall. I'm not going to have this drink because my two friends aren't going to have this drink. Like I'm going to do what everybody else is going to do, right? I'm going to go to this seminar because all my friends are going to this seminar, not because I want to go to the seminar. And as I've gotten to know Josh more deeply, um, I've recognized that in some ways he's like given me uh, an example to say, no, like I'm just going to do it the way that works best for me. And the reason why I say that is as I learn, even now, after knowing him for so long, even now, the deep, more deeply I understand the stresses and the experiences he had as a young person having to navigate the adult world as a child right? and having to know that your opinion and that your way of doing things was better. Like you would win if you had this game plan or you would perform like this if you did that, right? What child, what person is put in the pressure cooker like that? Most of us are not. And so whenever I start to doubt myself, because he's, he's really championed me to invest in me. You know, when everyone is doing more, he's asking me to do less. He's asking me to go deeper, not spread myself more thin, right? And when I think about the ways in which I want to do things, uh, there are some things that I'm like legitimately, I don't think this is ego. I'm just like, no, I just think this is a smarter idea. Like, why are we doing it this way? And most of us have a hard time, including myself, saying, no, you're wrong. This is better. Let's just do it this way and we'll see what happens. We're not going to do more of the same. And so I really take that to heart now. And if anything, I I always think of a little Josh on my shoulder. Uh, He's never one to actually input. Like he's happy to just let me run my life. But I always think about the fact that I aspire to get to a place where my internal voice does not contradict my instinct because my instinct is well-informed at this point at 42 years old, it's, it's informed. Okay. (laughs) So so when we have, so, I mean, it's taken a long time for me to be able to be okay with that and to not, you know, I think sometimes as females we're like, or as you know, minorities, we end up going, Oh yeah, I should defer. You're right. And No, like we don't have to do that anymore, especially like, why do I, why have I gone and competed at all these levels? Why have I tried to do instructionals? Why have I tried to, you know, teach these concepts outside of jujitsu? Because I don't like, I'm not going to make, I'm not going to put myself in a position where you can doubt me. I'm not going to put myself in a position where you're going to undermine me. I'm going to show up straight. You're going to know what the fuck I've done to have this opinion And if you have something to say about it, let's go. And like the world needs that, you know, the world needs that because we have been for far too long looking up to, I think, people who are truly not leaders. They're kind of leaders by default because we have this tendency to worship our jujitsu heroes, but our jujitsu heroes are human. And 
I had to learn that the hard way, like when I looked at my heroes, right? And I think that people have to learn that about what, you know, if someone sees me that way, like I am human. And as a human, I can do things, I can take actions to make you believe and trust the human that I am. So I'm going to try to do that. And then I'm going to try to use my influence to change things, in my opinion, for the better. So that's where I get that from. (laughs) Nice. Jen, you have more questions? Of course I have more questions. I would like to talk about your podcast, Emily. Let's talk. (laughs) The Master and the Apprentice. Can you tell us a little bit about what made you even want to do a podcast? So COVID happened, right? And like everybody is at home twiddling their thumbs. I started a vegetable garden. I started my bougie kitchen. Um, I was bird watching. We did a lot of that here. And um, I, yeah, I was doing all these like fun things that I would never have time to do. Um, no longer have time to do. Uh, but there was... Um, I mean, I'm no stranger to podcasts. I, I, I talk a lot, whether people like that or not. I mean, that's what you get. Don't listen. <laughs> don't listen if you don't like it. But uh, I talk a lot. Uh, teaching, articulating, conversing are all things that really turn me on. And over the pandemic, I was, I'm involved in a small um, business, like a group of tech guys. And we were consulting in the tech space. And uh, one of my partners said, hey, I got some member. I've got, I've got some memberships that I can give away for this app called Clubhouse. Do you know what Clubhouse is? And for a brief time, it really like was a big thing over COVID. I'm not really sure what the opinion on it mm-hmm. is now, but it was an audio app. And for people that don't know what it was, it for, when it first began, it was an audio app that was invite only. So you couldn't just sign up for the service. Someone had to give you an invite and pull you in. So um, the community was very concentrated. And from what I understand, like the origins, there were a lot of influencers in the African-American community, celebrities, musicians, people in the tech space. And so it kind of organically developed this very unusual group of people that you would probably never meet in real life, like never. And so I, I go on clubhouse to poke around and I'm like, this is kind of cool. And as I'm walking, uh, walking, as I'm like s- sorting through all the different rooms that, and the chat rooms, uh, what happens is like, you can go into a room quote unquote, and listen to essentially it's almost like a live podcast, but there is a speaker who's live And everyone has a little avatar on your screen and the speaker can invite panelists or audience members up on stage. Um, You just tap to raise your hand and then you can directly have a conversation with that person. And so I I was, I was looking through the rooms and I see martial arts like led by Lupe Fiasco. And I was like, is this like push kick the hip hop artist Lupe Fiasco? I was like, no way. Um, but I was like, maybe, cause I know that, um, for some reason I knew that there was a loose connection with, uh, him and show your role and show your role is, is a mutual sponsor. And so I went in the room and sure enough, it's this like guy that you listen to on the radio that is now talking to an audience about martial arts. And I was like, what does he know about martial arts? So I'm listening to him. And then I ask a question and Sure enough, we start chatting on stage and I, here I am having a conversation with a Grammy award winning artist. It was crazy. And then, and then he followed me and then I was like, wait, what? 
And it's that, it's the feeling of when someone recognizes you, right? Like someone that you respect or you admire sees you uh, like as a person, not a speck, but as a person. And you're just like, oh my God. So then um, following day, I was on there again. And there was uh, a room that he was leading on art. And people may or may not know, I have my degree in uh, fine arts. I was a painter. And so here was another intersecting uh, topic uh, that, that interested me. So I go in this room and he's like, he pulls me up on stage and he says, oh, hi, coach, em- oh, Sensei Emily, calls me Sensei Emily. And I was like, oh, hello. And I was like, I have a question because his, his uh, title for the room was a bit triggering. It was like Caravaggio or nothing. And Caravaggio is a painter, an Italian painter that was known for his uh, very dramatic lighting effects in his painting. So it was either very, very light or very, very dark. And so he was making the point like this was the best painter of all time. And so we started having a debate. A few minutes later, uh, the room fills up because the now past uh, Virgil Abloh, who was the creative director of Off-White and also head of Louis Vuitton menswear, big like pop culture influencer and celebrity comes in the room because he's friends with Lupe. So then now I'm on stage talking to Lupe Fiasco and Virgil Abloh. And I'm like, what is going on in my life right now? <laughs> so I was like, what is this? <laughs> and how is this real life? <laughs> yeah. And then Virgil's like, yeah. So like, what's this about? What's this about Lupe? Like Caravaggio. And so He's like, hmm, well, he goes, if I were to pick an artist that was influential, it would have been Duchamp. And so Duchamp was an artist that you that found that used found objects and would turn them into art, right? Sculptures. So one of his most famous pieces was like an upside down men's urinal. And so we started talking about art. And then somehow out of this conversation, I said, you know, we should do like a Sunday, I think it was on a Sunday, I was like, we should do like a Sunday brunch art battle. And Lupe's like, what's like, express your thought here. And I was like, why don't we have on Sunday afternoon, uh, we pick a topic like an era or a particular theme within art. You come to the Sunday art, art battle to promote or like fight for your artist. You get two minutes on stage to say why your artist was the best. And then every week the winner gets to wear a crown and then you get to pick the topic for the following week. And he's like, so down for it. So the following week we scheduled one and then it became a thing for months. Every week we would, and then the martial arts room, he asked if I wanted to, you know, help run that room. So two times a week, I was having these conversations that were like really interesting because, you know, Lupe is mostly known as a hip hop artist. So uh, in the mainstream. So he attracted a very different crowd than uh, like, I was like a nobody except for people who started to recognize me in the martial arts world. So it was, it was really fascinating because I didn't get to know Lupe. I like, okay. I knew Lupe as like a hip hop artist on the radio, but the person I was having conversations with was fascinating to me because he was involved in art. He was involved in music. He was involved in community work, uh, education, and so we kind of developed uh, like a online like friendship and uh, it led to other people on Clubhouse at the time asking if we were going to do more rooms or do this that, and the other. And so there came a time where Lupe was going to come get off Clubhouse 
And I had asked him previously, I was like, would you ever be interested in letting me interview you? Because at the time I was very interested in exploring the space between apprenticeship and mastership. Uh, I know that we don't necessarily, or mastery, we don't necessarily have those terms as much anymore, but I guess to jujitsu people would be like maybe between purple belt and black belt or black belt and beyond where you've learned enough You have to learn what you have to learn because there's the foundation of the thing. But once you learn the foundation of the thing, how do you make it your own? How does it, how do you go from being like random black belt to celebrity black belt? Or how do you go from being average competitor to like competitor with that really amazing game that everyone's talking about? How do we become beyond? And it was a, it was an interesting space for me because I was exploring that myself. I was like, do I know what I'm talking about? Like, do I know what I'm doing? Or am I just like aimlessly wandering around spewing garbage? Right. And a line really stuck out to me in the interview that I did with Lupe, where he said, there was a time when I was a kid and I didn't have enough words to rap. So I had to teach myself more words so I could rap. And you would never think that about him. You would think today, like, oh, people are like, he's a, he's a master with words, but there was a time where he didn't know enough. And so I thought that that was very interesting to break down for people in different categories and mediums. So I assembled a list of 10 guests and I was very, um, I was, I I didn't want to do an ongoing podcast because I know from watching my friends watch, do run podcasts, it can be a strain to maintain quality of guests when the field is only so big. And so I thought, and, and also I'm not just a jujitsu person. Like, yes, I'm well-known in jujitsu and it's something I love, but I am also very, like, I'm out there. Like, I, I love being involved in other types of industries and cultures and meeting people that don't do anything like what I do. And so I wanted to express myself that way because I think sometimes I feel a bit pigeonholed and I feel like, oh, everybody just thinks that all I want to do is just eat jujitsu and I don't. You know, like I want to use jujitsu as a medium because there's so many other fascinating mediums. So that's what that project was really all about. And I just made a list of, you know, people that I felt were performing at a really high level um, who were still like kind of exploring themselves. And um, yeah, and so now people have asked for our season two, but it's like, oh my gosh, like it was, it was a lot of work and, and I had more quiet space then, right? Because it was COVID. And so, um, yeah. so it's reminded me of the fact that like, Sometimes great projects are born from the quiet space, right? And thinking deeply about the things that you have around you. And, uh, and yeah, so, so that's what it was. I love it. I have loved listening to it. I've shared it with people. So I just thank you so much for creating that series. Well, thank you for listening. I, I wasn't sure if anybody would listen because I don't know. You know, you're also banking on crossover audiences. Mm-hmm. Will, 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 People at large be interested in listening to someone who's known in what? What sport? Jiu-jitsu? What is that, right? Um, <laughs> will a photographer pull people from jiu-jitsu, you know? Will people want to listen to someone who is a water sport athlete? But that is me. So I felt like that was okay. Like, I felt like that's really representative of my circle. I don't just hang out with jujitsu people. I don't just do one thing. So, so it was a a way for me to express myself, which felt good. I think that's very impressive too. Just the, just the, you don't just hang out with jujitsu people because it's so easy for, especially school owners, 
for their whole life to be wrapped up in just jujitsu. So do you have any suggestions for how to best balance not, you know, like not making jujitsu your entire life or identity? Yeah. I mean, look, I see this happen at so many levels that jujitsu is your identity. I've seen it happen at every level and I see it happening now with, with people who would be considered like, you know, pros, right? You cannot escape the jujitsu. And then if you don't do the jujitsu, are you even a relevant person? And, and the people who are not aware of this, um, you know, some ego driven people that are out there feel their self-importance everywhere. And as someone who is involved in a lot of different ecosystems, I look at them and I'm like, you are somewhat important in a niche sport that nobody cares about. Shut up. Shut up. (laughs) Go away. You don't matter in life. Nobody cares about you outside of this room, literally outside of this room. And it's laughable to me because they have no context for what the real world is. So this is what I mean by socialized behavior. You think that the world that you live in, so let's just talk about your school. The world that you live in is the only world that exists and everything is defined by this world. But you know, and I know that you should have many worlds. You have your world at home. You have your world at the school. You have your world at work. Maybe you have another social group. Maybe you go to church. But when you are part of, I just call them ecosystems, when you have more than one ecosystem, it gives you the opportunity to compare and contrast who you are in all of these different spaces. When you're only in one space, you're just affirming who you are in that one space. And then when that space gets taken away, you don't know who you are. And so when I was 19, I moved to New York City with $700 from Vancouver. And when I arrived, I had no friends, no family. I was like, man, I could be a totally different Emily. Like nobody here needs to know that I was the Emily that I was back in Vancouver. Right. And so I think that that's a real like challenge of your character. Like, who are you going to be when you don't have these walls to support you? And so... I think that if you feel like too much of your world is wrapped up in jujitsu and that feels suffocating, you should look at what's outside those walls. Like what else are you a part of? What else could you do that gives you relevance and value, right? Because we all know this and I was there when your jujitsu world comes crashing down because someone wants to blackball you or God forbid you trained at somebody's school and you shouldn't have or The girls don't like you anymore at the school that you're in. Whatever the reason is, if jujitsu is the only house that you live in, your world will fall apart. So just, I think, as a matter of mental health, I even practice this with my children. They are in Girl Scouts. They are in jujitsu. They go to gymnastics. They're at uh, school events. They have their neighborhood friends. They have my friends. They have my my friends' children as friends. Why? Because I know that in life... One day, someone is going to be a mean and make you feel like about yourself. And I will be damned if my children can't look at everybody else that loves them and say, no, I'm not the problem. That person is the problem. That's so important. And so I think that, you know, whether you're a child or you're an adult, you need to give yourself more context so that you know, I am not the problem or... If everyone in all of your ecosystems is always running away from you, (laughs) you are the problem. (laughs) (laughs) 
<laughs> there is a pattern. Yes. It's a pattern. But th- this goes back to when you asked earlier, AJ, why pass, protect, sweep, submit? I am articulating all the differences, right? And it's like the same thing in your social circles. Like build evidence so you know where your opinion or your feelings come from. Don't just like take it out of your ass, which is what we do, right? And so, you, it, but like really like signal to yourself, wow, I went to this school and nobody wants to be my friend. I went to that school and nobody wants to be my friend. And I went to the camp and nobody wanted to be my friend. Like what's going on? You know, like, is it them or am I am I not training with people properly, you know, but it requires some vulnerability and reflection to look at the trends amongst all your circles. And if everybody's going away and they're not coming in, that signals something, you know? So like I, I, it's, it's almost, I don't know if it's fair to say it's like a hobby or an obsession of mine. Like I go into other ecosystems and I'm like, okay, like what can I pull in? How can I collect people here? And so I become known amongst a lot of my friends is like, you know, Hey, Emily, do you know anyone that like owns a toy store in New York City? And I'll be like, why are you asking me this? And they're like, well, because my kid needs a job and you just and they love toys and you always know the most random people. And I'm like, um, that's really I, like, I don't know this. Like, why are you asking? And then two hours later, I'll call back and be like, actually, I do. I know somebody that knows this person and I can hook you up. <laughs> That's fantastic. I want to be that person. Yeah. That's, <laughs> that's fantastic. We could talk all day, I'm sure. I told you, not 30 questions. minutes. I told you. <laughs> I know. <laughs> I know. But we'll do it again. But we really appreciate your time. And yes, definitely, definitely. And we're looking so forward to having you at camp. It's going to be an absolutely amazing experience. So fun. Can't wait, guys. Yeah. So thank you very much. Where is the best place to connect with you online? You can catch me probably on Instagram, uh, Emily Kwok BJJ, uh, or you can go to my website, emilyquok.com, send me an email. I'm really sorry for anyone that's listening that I have not replied to. I've just been bombarded this month. So uh, yeah, we'll get around to it. (laughs) Um, But yeah, please come check me out. And we will see you at camp. And friends, thanks for listening. You can hang out with us on Instagram at Beauty and the Gee Podcast. And I'm out there at Brassy Broad Jen. And I'm AJ Klingerman everywhere you go. Uh, this is a production of the Brassy Broadcast. Right? Yeah. <laughs> okay, yeah. Be- <laughs> Beauty and the Gee is a production of the Brassy Broadcasting Company. And brought to you by Role Model Grappling. Okay. 